Let's um, close our eyes before coming to this passage um, and pray to the Father. Lord, Lord, as we come to your word, Lord, we are in need, uh, we're in need of your strength, we're in need of, Lord, your revelation to be able to see, to know, to understand more than with our heads, but with, Lord, all that we are and to be changed as we read your word, and it must be by your, work, your hand. Lord, as much as I have prepared, uh, Lord, these are just words without you. We pray that you would be working, Father, through your spirit to continually transform us, Lord, to be able to look at you more clearly and more consistently every day, to be able to reflect your glory to the rest of the world. May this be a blessing uh, to us this morning. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 27, right from the beginning, we're actually invited into something of a private moment for David. We read and hear a small snippet of his inner voice, the voice that he is actually having with his own heart. David thought to himself, or he said to his own heart, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up. He'll give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. Now, up until now, David has appeared as an all but hero, faultless hero of the faith. He's fought against the giant Goliath with the favor, with the faith in God to deliver him. He has been in the presence of the Lord as he's gone out to battle again and again against the Philistines. He has persevered and continued to escape the seemingly endless pursuit of Saul while leading 600 men and their wives and their children. He has stayed his hand in an act of incredible restraint against Saul with godly wisdom, not once but twice, trusting in God to deliver his promises. But here... In chapter 27, in this private inner room of David's heart, we hear that this man of faith is exhausted. It is as though he's woken up in the middle of the night after yet again a sleepless evening, sat in his cot and just had his hands on his face, sighing, one of these days, Saul is going to get me. It doesn't appear that he is at this moment afraid of Saul killing him, but instead just tired. Tired of the length of time that this suffering of his has been going on and he just wants rest. To have a break from fleeing from his life. A number of years ago, Catherine and I travelled to Cambodia for a holiday with our family in mission there. And while we were there, we saw one of those traditional shadow puppet shows. I'm not sure if anyone else has seen one of them here. The ever so thin 
puppet cardboard cutouts or wood cutouts that are held up to a sheet with a light behind them. And they cast a clear shadow of the puppets on the sheet to tell the story. But all the while, the sticks and the people holding them are in the background, held far enough away that they are unclear and can't be seen. Now, I had no idea what the play was about. Um, and, but it was great to watch for the first hour. They go for a while. <laughs> How we see our Bible characters often when reading in Scripture can often be like these shadow puppets. They're two-dimensional. At times, this is the author's in, uh, intention. He wants to draw clear lines between what is good and right and wrong. But other times, it can lead us to elevate or de-escalate these Bible characters beyond the realms of humanity. As though they were more or less than people. And in doing so, we miss our own human connection with them. And even more so, the very real way that God is dealing with people, real people. That this isn't a fairy tale filled with heroes and monsters and gods, but people like you and I, people that grow weary. For me in this chapter, David, like Pinocchio, turns from a puppet into a real boy or a real man. I haven't experienced long-term suffering and exhaustion myself. I know people that have. And I know that there are even people here that have and some that still are. David here is just, he's just like you. He's just like me. He's tired of it. His walk of faith has not been an easy one. Ray called it last week the school of hard knocks. And now he is caught up speaking to his own heart of what he sees in this weary state as an inevitable outcome. One of these days Saul will get me. And in his current state of mind he sees a possibility as an inevitability. but Saul has actually been hunting him for years already. And he hasn't laid a finger on David this whole time. So why is David suddenly tired and uncertain? The Lord has been with him. We know that David has been protected and kept safe and delivered from Saul again and again at every turn. Has God now changed his plan for David? He has certainly given no indication to David that he would ever hand him to Saul. So does David have any reason to be concerned or weary from it, to know that he will one day be caught? No. But... He is caught so often as we are in the weary times in his own misery. 
He has forgotten at this time his own rich history of salvation at the hands of God. And he has become dark of mind and heart and is speaking only to himself of things that are untrue. Of things that are faithless. His eyes are turned inward rather than looking to heaven. And so he sees the world and his circumstances through the eyes of a man. Rather than speaking truth and the promises of God to his weary heart, remembering the salvation and the refuge that the Lord has given him in the past and promised him for the future. He didn't have his eyes fixed on heaven or trust that the Lord would make his path straight and bring him to a place of rest. Let us be aware of what we are speaking to our hearts, particularly in times of trial. At no other time is it more important to cling tightly to a word of truth than when we are weary. We must hold tight to the way of God. Now, having said all this, our sermon this morning is titled The Way of a Man. After Proverbs 14, 12, which says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And this is exactly what happens in this chapter. David, desiring a good, a good thing, in fact, a promise of God, rest, seeks it his own way, the way of a man. And as we will see, it leads him only further into trouble, never delivering him to the thing that he hoped for. If only, David says in his heart, if only Saul wasn't chasing me, then I could rest. If only I can enter into the land of the Philistines, then Saul will stop and I'll have just a moment to catch my breath. Have you ever listened and perhaps caught yourself in a position like David saying to your heart, if only. If only I was different or if only the situation would change or if only I did such and such a thing, then, then everything will be okay. Perhaps we have been saying if only to ourselves this week. Can you see in David's thinking where his hope is laid in that? This psalmist, David, who wrote the opening to Psalm 62 and many others, that says things like, truly my soul rests in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will never be shaken. Here, now though, in his heart, places his hope not in the Lord, but in refuge of the Philistines. His enemy and the enemy of the people of Israel they have instead become his hope for rest. This, David says in verse 1, is the best thing that he can do. The best thing he can think of. 
God has totally fallen from his mind at this moment. His hope for that promised rest is not in God, but in his own way. His own cleverness. And he is confident of it. So with a plan in mind, David sets out for Gath and the audience of their king, Achish. David and the 600 men with him left and went to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him and David, his two wives. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. And then David said to Achish, if I have found favour in your eyes, let it be a sign to me, uh, a place, a country town that I may live there. And so that day Achish gave him Ziklag. And it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. And David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now, in reading commentators, there is some disagreement over this chapter. You will have noticed, perhaps, that there is no obvious word of approval or disapproval from God on David's actions in this chapter. So is what David is doing right or wrong? It very much affects the message. Many commentators agree that there is more than enough evidence in the rest of Scripture to indicate the lack of godly wisdom in what David is setting out to do. However, those that believe David's actions are acceptable and even blessed by God hang their hat on one nail. The success they see in David's plan. Saul is no longer in pursuit Saul has abandoned his search. David was a threat to Saul because he was a potential usurper to the throne. But now that he appears to be a traitor to the nation, having joined with the Philistines, that threat is gone. David managed, managed to deceive Saul. His plan was so successful that he also gained favour with Achish the king of Gath, because he also believes that David is a traitor. And so he gives him the town of Ziklag. So David is now free from, David, from Saul's pursuit and also has a place to call home, to rest his head. This looks like a successful plan. Everything is turned out for David. But while David's successful plan at least proves that he was clever and cunning, does it indicate God's approval? The approval of his actions. Was it good that David went his own way? Listen again to the rest of the story. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and Gerzites and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked the area, he didn't leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes 
and then returned to Akish. When Akish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He didn't leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they may inform on us and say, this is what David did. And this was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. And Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, or as Maureen's translation had, he has become a stench to the Israelites, so he will be my servant forever. I wonder when the last time you built a sandcastle at the beach was. The kids and I have built many, and as the weather warms up, I'm sure many more will come. We like to build them as big as we can. And then the tide comes in, and our sandy Tower of Babel begins to erode away, all of our glory falling back into the ocean. And the kids become distraught, and they try to reinforce the walls to build them back up again before the next wave comes. Dig a moat, build a wall. If you think the house maintenance you have on your own house is bad, a sandcastle is horrific. It's frantic and it's inevitable. It's the same with our houses. We lose the castle and all the shell people that called it home are washed out to sea. David has been successful in making a home to rest for himself and his people, but it is a sandcastle. Just look at what he has to do to maintain it. He must consistently convince the king of Gath that he is a traitor to Israel in order to maintain favour with him. And how does he do that? By raiding the nation of Israel, or at least saying that's what he is doing. But a part of David's plan, his clever original plan, is that he isn't a traitor to Israel. He just looks like one. So David finds a workaround. He proves again the cunning ways of a man. And instead of raiding, Israel raids the original nomadic tribes that occupied the land of Canaan before Israel even arrived. And by doing so, he's killing two birds with one stone. He's clever. He continues to serve Israel by destroying their enemies and at the same time earns further favour favor with Akish. It's perfect. Except for the one hitch. If somebody tells on him. If someone informs Kish that he is being deceived so David's got more maintenance to do. He will have to kill all the men and women of those tribes, leaving none alive to ruin his plan. Now, some commentators claim that David had a right to kill these people because when Israel originally came into the land, they had received a commandment from the Lord to wipe out the original tribes. Totally. 
something that they failed to do. So these commentators state, perhaps David remembered this command and his actions were justified. He was fulfilling what the Lord had given him. He was just serving the Lord with good works. Now, perhaps this is exactly what David was thinking at the time, but the righteousness of this work is removed when we see in verse 11 the true reason that he was killing these people. It wasn't to serve the Lord. He was doing it to remove informants. That he would be able to maintain his guise and keep his rest and stay his, in his own ways of maintaining his sandcastle, protecting himself. That is why he killed those people. And it wasn't a one-time action, was it? For such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. A year and a half, he maintained his guise with a kish. A year and a half of falling soul and a year and a half, I'm sure, of convincing himself that in fact the actions he was taking to secure this rest were good and right. Now, our girls have many dolls that they enjoy playing with and for some odd reason they are always drawn to the ugliest dolls. They are the stuff of nightmares, uh, to be honest. What they love to do is to dress these dolls up with the nicest dresses they can stuff them into. But no, how, no matter how pretty these dolls look on the outside or whatever they've been crammed into, underneath is still the same horrible-looking instrument of nightmares. David looks at times like he is doing a good thing. He is just seeking rest for his people. He's just escaping Saul. He's just fooling the enemy. He's just fulfilling an ancient command from the Lord. Aren't these good things? But he is dressed up ugly sin with good works. Years ago, I read Tim Keller's book on the prodigal son and his words concerning the older son struck me. The younger son has to repent of his bad deeds, but it's the elder son who must repent of his good ones. Why? Because even though the elder son dwelt in the father's house and did the father's work, he did it all for the wrong reasons. He thought he had to earn the father's love and grew angry when it was given to his rebellious younger brother graciously, freely. When I read this and I considered not just my obvious sins, but the ones that I had dressed up in good works, I actually started to cry in the office. But it was okay because I worked at a church at the time. It's okay to cry at church. 
In an engineering office, it's questioned. (laughs) How easy it is, though, to point our finger here at David and wonder at his actions. But we do this action. We dress up our sin and good works so naturally. It's like kids playing with dolls. We just do it and we don't even realise. The final clincher for how well the ways of men pan out for David is found in the first two verses of chapter 28. David's cunning plan has worked so well that Akish has called him to war for him against Israel. And while David has a great one-liner, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. David is in a sticky position. And that's where the passage ends. I like what Maureen said. This is exciting. It's got the feel of the end of an episode. What's going to happen next next episode? In episode 29... Well, the author actually cuts to a totally different scene for a whole chapter. He goes to what Saul is doing. And he'll come back to it in 29. But we are left wondering, what will David do? Will he come up with another clever plan? Will he be ensnared by his own deception and made to kill his own countrymen? Now that he has committed sins like this that we have read and he has tried to seize rest without the Lord, will he ever become king? I remind you of the proverb I mentioned at the beginning, 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. David's way appears good at times. But it really hasn't achieved anything. What rest did he end up having? After a year and a half of brutality and deception, he ends up in a worse position than ever. The ways of a man got him nowhere. How futile it is to seek the promises of God like rest and salvation and protection through the ways of men. But isn't our story just like David's? Not just in sharing a weariness, but in often looking to ourselves to achieve the promises of God in our own ways, in our own plans, rather than looking and waiting upon the Lord. But what is astounding about this chapter is that while the whole chapter is filled with David's sin and the downfall of him going his own way, of trying to secure rest without God, even at the end of this chapter, after reading all that David did and at times being repulsed by his foolishness and the intensity of it, 
the Lord does not cast David away. David doesn't even seem to become aware ever of his faults in this chapter. And this is astounding because after all that David did, God remained faithful to him anyway. The grace of God swallowed up his sin, the sin of his chosen king. And God, not David, brought about the fullness of the promises that he had made to his chosen one. So that David could participate in rest one day. And David did. He became king over Israel. He enjoyed days of rest that were given to him, not earned by his cleverness, but given to him by God. No maintenance required. It's complete. It's perfect. And he shared in the forgiveness of God, even for the sins that he is unaware he has committed. If there is something that wearies the soul, it is the seemingly endless presence of sin in our lives. Just when you think you have found them all, you turn over another stone and there's another one dressed up in good works. But what peace there is in knowing that even as we turn that stone over, we know we are already forgiven through the cross. For this and for every stone in our lives that is still yet unturned. That all of God's promises and blessings that he has made to us are ours and will be brought about by him. And are just waiting to be fully realised on the day that he returns. This surely is a part of the rest that we can enjoy now. The light load that comes with being a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord. That our sins are dealt with. That our future is secure. While the way that seems good to a man leads to death, those that believe in Jesus as Lord are secure and held in another way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And again in John 10, 9, I am the gate. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. By all means, anyone here that is weary in their walk, lament to the Lord. Share it with him. But don't speak to your hearts as David did, believing that he could bring about his own hope for rest. Speak instead of the faithfulness of the Lord that you have already experienced of what we read in Scripture and wait on him to give to you through Christ a rest that will exceed anything the plans of men could come up with.
This is the place that we live and that we dwell in our relationship with our Father. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, even though we've read really a message that has so uh, a lot of negative to it, Lord, of hearing the failed works of David. And Father, to be able to remember that you hold us secure, not because of what we do, but because of what you have done. Lord, that even the sins, even the times where we have turned to our own ways and we have been unaware of it, Lord, to know that you have forgiven that, that your grace in your Son on the cross has covered everything that we have done, aware or not. Even the secret sins that we hide even from ourselves or excuse with good works, you have forgiven We give thanks that we rest solely and securely in the work of Jesus. That you have secured for us rest and given it to us freely. Lord, that there is a day coming where you will return and all the weariness will be washed away. That even as Yoshi shared this morning, Lord, that we will be filled with joy. Joy even more abundant than we can share in now. Fuller and fuller for all of eternity. How could we replace that with our efforts? Thank you, Lord for your kindness to us, for your mercy. We pray for those here now or those that are streaming in, Father, or those that we know and that we love, that have weary faiths and that are treading the ways of men. Lord God, that you would reveal to them your promise and the work of your Son, and the fruitlessness of their own path. Lord, that they may delight even now in the tremendous rest that we can have today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.